Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to gather with you this morning to rejoice in our forgiving God. My name is, is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. If, if you, I haven't met you yet, I would love to introduce myself to you afterwards, so please meet me in the lobby after our service. When our, our service ends, our, our worship continues in our fellowship, so please, please hang around afterwards and, and get to know us. For now, though, we continue in our service by the, hearing the preaching of God's Word. So please, if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. To remind you, we are spending the months of June and July in a study of the book of Psalms. And today, Psalm 32, the blessings of forgiveness. Psalm 32, the blessings of forgiveness. Before we read God's word, though it is appropriate for us to pause and pray for God's help in our hearing and the proclaiming of, of this word. So I would encourage you to, to make this prayer your own, and if you agree with me, join in by saying with me, Amen, at the end. Please, let's pray. Our Father, it is as we sing to you that you would occupy our lowly hearts this morning. Lord, that you would give us ears again to, to hear your voice in your word. Father, we confess that in our hearts sin remains. So we pray this morning that you would use your word to convict us of sin. To show us our need for confession of that sin. And Lord, of the blessings of forgiveness that are found in Jesus Christ. It is in his precious name that we pray this. Amen. Well, the, the 2013 movie Frozen tells the story of Elsa, the Queen of Arendelle, and, and her sister, Anna. Kids, you will know this movie well. Elsa is, is born with a, a magical power to, to create, to control snow and ice. But since the power ends up hurting her sister, her parents force her to conceal her power. Essentially, it means that, that poor Elsa is secluded to her room in her castle for her entire childhood, even after her parents' death. She spends all her days hidden. Well, on the, the fateful day of her coronation, her first public appearance, she sings about her need, even on that day, to, to hide herself, hide who she is. I'll refrain from singing it to you this morning, but, but the words go, don't let them in, don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, put on a show. Make one wrong move and they will know. While her powerful and dangerous secret have, have led to a, a life of hiding, of seclusion and, and hardship, and the only solution she sees is to keep on hiding it from everyone, even her own sister. Now well, that's a, a parable. In fact, something of like how we're all born with a, a terrible power that ends up hurting others, even those that we love. And the only way the world around us knows how to deal with it is to conceal it. Just be the good boy or girl that you have to be. If we make one wrong move, the world will know who we really are inside. 
Well, the Bible has a very different solution to how we're to deal with the evil inside. Our sin problem, it's it's not to remain silent and conceal our wrongs, but confess our sins to God. The best part of a happy life is forgiveness, God's forgiveness in response to confession. In our sermon text this morning, Psalm 32 is David's testimony to this truth. He has tried, like Elsa, hiding his sin. But it only leads to more heartache and hardship. So he writes this song this morning to instruct us in the blessings and joys of bringing our sins into the light by confessing them to God and knowing the peace of his forgiveness. And David calls on us all this morning to make prayers of confession to God and to experience for ourselves the joy he has experienced by confessing our sin. Let's read Psalm 32, the blessings of forgiveness. Join with me in the superscription as we read. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, so righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, do you know the blessings, the joy of receiving forgiveness from God? Our main idea this morning, the best part of a happy life is God's forgiveness. The best part of a happy life is God's forgiveness. John Calvin introduces the psalm well. David exclaims that the highest and best part of a happy life consists in this, that God forgives a man's guilt and receives him graciously into his favor. After speaking of the forgiveness that comes from God, in verse 5, David invites us all, in verse 6, to follow his example, to join him in happiness, instructing us to to pray in confession of sin to God. The best part of a happy life is God's forgiveness. We're going to have four points to explore this psalm today, which I will share as we go. My hope is that our attention to David's testimony will free us 
from the temptation to, to conceal and, and put on a show and motivate us to confess our sins freely and rejoice in the forgiveness that he offers. Let's start by going back to the first two verses. Our first point this morning, confession brings blessing. In verses 1 and 2, confession brings blessing. In verses 1 and 2. Well, David's psalm is called a maskil there in the superscription. But we're not sure what that term means. It might be a musical term. Many believe a maskil is meant to impart wisdom. Well, even if now that's not what it means, this is certainly what the psalm does. It imparts wisdom. Like the Sermon on the Mount, David starts by pronouncing blessings with two beatitudes here in the first two verses. David is not blessing God. He is calling himself blessed and others like him. The first two verses are a commendation of the person who is in a prosperous situation. Blessed is who? Well, blessed means more than to be happy, but it's something like that. It's talking about a state of human flourishing. And it's frankly what we're, we're all after, isn't it? The philosopher Blaise Pascal made this claim. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. They will never take the least step but to this object. Happiness. You might be convinced this morning that the, the best way to find happiness is by ignoring, excusing, or, or hiding the wrongs that you've done. But David here is to testify to the opposite. The only way to true happiness is to find forgiveness through confession. David piles on the words here in the first verses, words that describe the wrong that we do. You know, the Bible has over two dozen words to describe our sin. Sometimes the words might feel antiquated, but they offer a profound analysis of our heart. Here, David uses three of them, transgression, sin, and iniquity. There in verses 1 and 2. Transgression, first. It's, it means to, to break a law, to violate a standard. Well, to t- transgress requires a law, and law requires a law giver. We're reading here from the Old Testament in a period when the people of God were under the Mosaic law. So God had redeemed and, and entered into covenant with his people. And through Moses, God gave them the Ten Commandments. Uh, Additionally, Moses gave them hundreds of other ordinances, applying the principles of the Ten Commandments to daily life. So the whole Jewish way of life was regulated by these laws, what to eat, what to wear, how to worship, how even to govern. And any violation of these laws is what David calls here a transgression. David also uses the word sin there in verse 1. Maybe that's the one we're more familiar with. Sin means to miss a mark. It's as if we're we're shooting an arrow and it falls short of the target. Sin refers to the idea of going astray, 
doing wrong? What is the mark that we're meant to hit? What is the path that we're meant to stay on? Well, it's God's perfect righteousness and holiness. Exactly what is expressed in the law that he gave through Moses. And finally, there in verse 2, he uses the term iniquity. If any of these words feel antiquated, it's, it's this one. We hardly use this word, iniquity, anymore, but it's used more than 200 times in the Old Testament. We thought about it last week in, in Psalm 31, where David, in verse 10, says his sorrow, his, his sighing, his strength failing is because of his iniquity. We said last week that, that the word means our perverseness, our wickedness. It's, it's who we are. In, in Hebrew, it's related to the word that means to bend, to, to twist, to distort. We are crooked and therefore do things that are crooked that lead to crooked consequences. We are iniquitous. We do iniquity and therefore suffer iniquity. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. You know, often in our day, we just use the word sin as a catch-all, meaning any failure to conform to God's standard in, in thought, word, and deed. David here, with every human being with him, is, is guilty of, of sin. We have transgressed God's law. We have fallen short of His holiness. We have warped what He has made good. You know, I don't need to know anything about you except that you are to know that you are guilty. You know, you might in fact live a very good life as we count goodness. But the Bible is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that even your good deeds are filthy rags to the perfect holiness of God. You know, sure, you're not as evil as the people making the evening news, but we all make room for evil in our hearts. We fail even to meet our own standards of holiness, let alone God's. What we see here in these first two verses, that happiness is a universal goal, all men seek it, but sin is a universal disease. All men have it. Well, if, if that's our state, how is it that we can be blessed? How can we know happiness? What happens when an unstoppable force, our desire to be happy, meets an immovable object, our sin? Well, what does the verse say? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The solution is that we need forgiveness. We need covering. We need our iniquity not counted. The word David uses here for forgiveness actually means lifted, carried, whose transgression is lifted, removed from us. Covered is exactly what it seems. It's like our sin is a pile of, of garbage and it's been covered by a fresh snowfall, pure and white. 
To not count our iniquity is to not reckon it to us, not consider it against us. We have a problem. We are sinners. We sin and need sins to be dealt with, to be lifted, to be covered, to not be considered against us. Well, the final line of verse 2 points us to how we get that forgiveness, that covering. The blessed man, he says, has a spirit in whom there is no deceit. We cannot deal with our sins by hiding them ourselves. We need a covering, but we cannot provide it. Now, we need to deal honestly with ourselves before God. The way to happiness is not to hide, but confess. David tried to hide and, and found it miserable. That's, that's his testimony in, in the next three verses, three through five. And our, our second point this morning, confession brings freedom. Confession brings freedom, verses three through five. Confession brings freedom. Here in verse three, David is no longer pronouncing blessings But notice he uses the first person, I, my, me. He is speaking now from personal experience. And we need to listen this morning to learn from what he experienced. David himself was guilty of transgression, sin, and iniquity. You know, he doesn't mention specifically what he has in mind. You might think of his sinful lust and an adultery with Bathsheba, his cruel murder of her husband, Uriah, his sinful pride in the taking of a census. Well, as notorious as these sins are, David was guilty of far more too. Whatever the particular sin is he's thinking of here, he tried keeping silent, he says in verse 3. This is made clear in verse 5 when we see the alternative to acknowledge and confess. But, but for now, here in verse 3, he tried hiding it. He refused to acknowledge his sin to God. If the first verses describe our universal goal, happiness, and our universal disease, sin, this is our universal deception. Keeping silent is not just what David tried to do, but but all people by nature do. None of us by nature confess our sins to God. We try everything else to deal with them instead. You know, we try to cover our sins by good works or not count them by ignoring them or maybe lift them from us by rationalizing why we did it. But all those attempts are insufficient before a holy God. Because he is God, he has a right to say what is evil. Because he is wise, he knows all that we do. And because he is good, he cannot ignore, rationalize, or or merely offset our evil. It must be dealt with. What David confesses that he experiences here is actually a mercy of God. He says in verse 3, when he kept silent, his bones wasted away. Is he describing, you know, osteoporosis, too little calcium? No, it's, it's poetic language. We're in the Psalms. 
describing how weak he felt. It says he was continually growing all the day, sighing and suffering. He goes on to describe the experience as as God's heavy hand upon him. He could feel the weight of his sins deep down in him. He felt the burden of his wrong. The image he uses in verse 4 is how weak we all feel in this summer. You know, all our energy is sapped even after a short time in the, the blazing sun and sweltering heat. I wonder if you've ever felt the way that David is describing here in verses 3 and 4. I remember when I was first under the conviction of sin by God's grace. Even though I thought I was a good person, getting good grades in school and not doing the quote-unquote bad, thing uh, bad things that kids were doing, I, I had an abiding sense of shame. Despite all appearances, I, I was indulging in secret sins. But I kept silent. I didn't tell anyone about it except those who would celebrate and join in on my sins. I remember wanting to to talk to my pastor about it. But when the meeting finally came, my courage failed. And I just continued to hide my sin. Well, I tried something else. I, I tried changing my behavior, but it didn't get rid of my guilt. You know, but it, it wasn't just before I was a Christian. Since God graciously saved me and opened my lips to confess my shame and guilt to Him, I still fall back into the pattern of hiding my sin. This is a universal deception. I, I still, by my spirit, fall back into this deception that I can handle it on my own, or that it's not really that big of a deal. This week I read about a Native American tradition. It teaches that inside of every human heart is a triangle. You can imagine the three sharp points. When someone does evil, the gods turn the triangle and its edges prick the heart, alerting them to stop that what they're doing is wrong. It's a a powerful image and it, it proves the universal problem. Even other traditions recognize that we have consciences from God that alert us to our sin and evil. The pain that David is confessing he feels here in verses 3 and 4, to feel our bones wasting and our strength drying, to feel the pain of that triangle in the heart is actually a mercy from God. Our consciences, burdened by guilt, is a a God-given gift. Paul in Romans 2.15 speaks of those who, even without the law of God, have consciences there bear witness to all of their sin. All people have this conscience from God. And our conscience speaks to us, just like Jiminy Cricket to Pinocchio. Today is Disney Day, apparently. Do you, do you remember that one? When the fairy gives life to the, the wooden puppet, Pinocchio, she also gives the cricket a job. The blue fairy says, I W Pinocchio's conscience, Lord High Keeper of the knowledge of right and wrong, counselor in moments of high temptation, and guide along the straight 
and narrow path. Consciences are our counselors in temptation, guides along the straight and narrow path. And exactly how that conscience speaks to us is not in words, but so often in pain, the burden of guilt, like it does to David here. But you know, that Native American tradition goes on to say, if the triangle keeps turning, what happens is the edges of that triangle eventually wear down, leaving an endlessly spinning circle in a calloused, unfeeling heart. To ignore that voice, the guilt, the the pain, wears that triangle down, bones wasted away, all the way to nothing. Our hearts become deaf and dead. Our consciences seared by, as if by with a hot iron so that we feel nothing. The conscience is a terrible thing to waste. Listen to it. The, the reality that our conscience can be seared in this way is actually a part of the reason why God has graciously given us this body, the church. For the brothers and sisters here to be our Jiminy Cricket, to correct us when, when we're in sin and we, we don't hear our conscience. In Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We can act as conscious to one another, bringing faithful wounds in correction when the wounds of the spinning circle fail. This is, in fact, the process of church discipline from one-on-one correction all the way to the, the final step of removal from the church. Faithful wounds of a friend, all in an attempt to waken the conscience to unconfessed sin. You know, we don't know how long David kept silent or what it is that caused him to finally speak up. Maybe the words of a friend. But it was God's mercy to bring him to conviction of sin in a very real and loud way. Silence cannot secure your blessing. There is only one solution for our disease, the universal solution, confession. Let me reread verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The only solution... For all of our sins, the only access to forgiveness, to covering, to our iniquity, not counted against us, is what David does here. To acknowledge and confess sin, iniquity, and transgression. In verse 5, we have three lines of what David did, following one line of what God did in response. I acknowledged. I did not cover. I said... And you forgave. Forgiveness only comes through confession. Especially if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian. I want you to notice that forgiveness is not a reward for something good that David did. 
Right? It is the result of him being honest about all the evil he has done. And notice, all three words that we were careful to define earlier are repeated here in verse 5. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. All of them are dealt with by simply acknowledging them to God. But, but, but I want to be clear here. It's not simply you know, closing our eyes, saying them, and poof, they're gone. I think the reason all three are repeated for us here in verse 5, transgression, sin, and iniquity, is to, to remind us that, that confession isn't just saying, I did this, right? It is acknowledging that what you did violated God's standard. It fell short of His goodness. It, it was crooked and deserves crooked consequences. That's why we were careful to define these words at the start. We must share in our confession God's assessment about what we have done, calling them transgression, sin, and iniquity. We must be convinced that we are sinners, we have sinned, and that we cannot by our own selves satisfy God's justice. Our confession means that we must feel the same way He does about our sin, hating it, and by confession, turning away from it. And the glorious result is there at the end of verse 5. God forgives the iniquity of our sin. He carries the iniquity, the crooked consequences of our sin. That's what that word means, forgive, carries. You know, it would be unjust of God to not give sin what it deserves. He is good. But He lifts the consequences. And where does He put them? On Himself. I want to return to that word, count, back in verse 2. The Lord counts no iniquity. Again, it means to reckon or consider. When you confess your sins to God, the blessing is not that He reckons the iniquity, sorry, it's that He no longer reckons the iniquity or the the sinfulness to you. This is the beauty of of what we call justification, being declared or, or reckoned not guilty before God. We have to get this very carefully because it's, it's so hard, so close to the heart of the good news of the Bible, of, of the gospel. When God offers salvation to you, it is not that He first changes you into someone righteous and, and then counts you as no longer wicked. The good news of justification is that though we are sinners, verse 2, He does not reckon our real iniquity against us. We are still sinners, but He does not declare us sinners. This is exactly how Paul understands Psalm 32. This is why we read Romans 4 earlier in our service, because he he quotes it to prove that God justifies the good. No, God justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5, and 6, what we read earlier. To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Paul goes on to quote Psalm 32. God justifies not the one made good, but the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. 
Paul says, because he counts righteousness to us apart from works. Romans 4 goes on to quote Genesis 15, 6. I think the reason Paul quotes both is because it uses the same Hebrew word, the word count. Speaking of Abraham, Moses wrote, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The good news of the Bible, both the law here in Genesis and the writings and the Psalms, is not that God will clean you up so that you can be right with him. It is that he makes you right apart from any goodness in us simply by faith. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And how did he do this? By forgiving your iniquity. By lifting your sins from you and placing them on Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life, never committing any transgressions, sins, or iniquities. But God's just plan was to lay on Him all of our sins. On the cross, Jesus suffered God's just wrath against our sins. This is forgiveness, saints. Your sins lifted from you and placed on Jesus that He might suffer for them. So that you might have his righteousness. Our sins covered by Jesus' righteousness. The great exchange. And of course, before you get comfortable in your sins, justification is always followed by sanctification. If justification is that pure white snow falling on our trash, Jesus' righteousness covering you, Sanctification is the process where the trash beneath is made into something beautiful. Hebrews 10.14 puts it simply, For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time, that's justification, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You guessed it, that's sanctification. You have been made perfect, you are being made perfect. We are first declared perfect, but now being made perfect. Sanctification is a a slow process. It won't be finished in this world, but it is the irrevocable evidence that we have been justified. It is the true fruit of the new root. Brothers and sisters, church, this is the best news you could possibly hear. All men seek Happiness. The the universal goal of happiness is available to all through the one universal solution of confession. What reason could you possibly give to hide your sins? To try to, to cover it up with the rags of your good works? Brothers and sisters, bring your sins to the light before God. Simply acknowledge that you have broken God's standard, fallen short of His glory, have been crooked in thought, word, and deed. You know, in a crowd this large, I have to assume that there are some of you hiding some sin from God and others. Please listen 
to David's testimony this morning. Forgiveness for the iniquity that you hide is freely available. Confess it and God will forgive the iniquity of your sins. David himself, if he were with us this morning, would urge you. He calls all to offer prayers while he can be found. That's exactly what he says in our next verses, 6 through 9. Our third point this morning, confession is for all. Verses 6 through 9, confession is for all. After testifying to his his own experience with silence and confession, David brings it to bear on us. Therefore, verse 6 begins, If God offers forgiveness in Christ by confession, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. Based on context, I think it's clear that he means prayers of confession of sin. David as king is an example of of good spiritual leadership. As one author put it, the kindest thing a spiritual leader can do is help bring people out of denial and into confession so that they can experience healing. The kind of forgiveness that David has received, he longs for others to have. It has given him freedom to confess his sins to others. Notice here, saints, that his his confession is is not through a confessional and a priest, but directly to God in private prayer. What's even more surprising, here in the Old Testament, there's, there's no mention of the sacrificial system. God personally receives your confession at all times and in all places. But it does lead to David freely talking about his sin. Here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about David's sin. More than 2,000. That's Jesus. When you have been exposed before God in your sin, what can man do to you? They can't know anything more about you than God knows and even better. So learn, brothers and sisters, to confess your sins not just before God, but then to be free to tell others about them. That doesn't mean going around announcing our sins, but that we should feel freedom not to hide our sins, to maintain our our reputation. Confess to God and then use those sins to help others confess too. Go and read James 5.16. The Bible commands us to confess our sins to one another. But verse 6 comes with a warning. Confess while he may confess be found. You might say, well, can't he always be found? I mean, he's omnipresent. There's nowhere he can't be found. He's eternal. There's no time he can't be found. Well, the time for repentance is not eternal. It might be that refusing to confess now, you are killing your conscience. Or it might be that your very life will be required of you today. The godly learn to offer confession as soon as they feel the conviction of sin. To silence it is to play with fire. Conviction of sin is a gift from God, but it is not promised. The one who becomes accustomed to evil will find it harder and harder to confess. 
The Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle put it this way, Every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse, hardens our hearts, blunts the edges of our conscience, and increases our evil inclinations. So David would tell you, offer your prayer while he may be found. Offer your prayer of confession to him now. You do not know what tomorrow holds. If he gives the gift of conviction, act. Well, how do you act? What might this prayer look like? Well, it can include more, but I think it must always include at least these three things. First, an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Second, an expression of sorrow. And third, a plea for forgiveness. Let me say that again. First, an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Second, an expression of sorrow. Third, a plea for forgiveness. I think we have that on a slide. David doesn't excuse or defend himself to God. First, he acknowledges what he did was wrong. We, in our acknowledgement, should be specific, using biblical language, as 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 old as they might seem, (laughs) to name your sin. Second, express sorrow. Genuine sorrow aligns our heart with the truth of what we confess. Sometimes we have to to labor to express sorrow, to, to speak to our hearts, to convince them to be sorry, to feel what is true. And if you find that hard to even confess that to God, that you lack godly sorrow for sin, that is sin too, but it can be forgiven. And third, a plea for forgiveness. Ask God to lift your sins from you again. Not because of your goodness. Not because you promise you'll do better next time. But because of Christ. And he will forgive you. Acknowledgement of wrongdoing, an expression of sorrow, and a plea for forgiveness. And the promise is there in the second half of verse 6. I think the image he uses is the floods of of judgment. If you confess your sins to God, taking refuge in Him, when judgment waters come, they will not reach you. You know, God flooded the earth in the time of Noah to teach us that sin deserves judgment. But also to teach us that He offers refuge in an ark that He provides. And the ark that God has provided us is Christ. And what is the door? Confession. He will, in verse 7, therefore be a hiding place for you, kept from all troubles. Instead of being surrounded by the floodwaters, you will be surrounded by the shouts of deliverance with everyone else on the ark with you. He rescues from his own judgment for his own glory. In verses 8 and 9, I think we have David speaking to the people. He himself instructing and teaching us in the way that we should go. He has gone through it. We have read here of his testimony. Now he wants to instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. This is exactly why the fairy gave to Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket, to guide him along the straight and narrow path. David is helping us to to calibrate our conscience this morning. That's a part of what God's word and, and God's people do. 
to strengthen weak consciences, to correct erring ones. So we listen, therefore, brothers and sisters, to God's instruction and teaching to calibrate our conscience. And what does he say? Don't be like the stubborn horse or mule. They only obey when constrained or controlled by a bit and bridle. True confession cannot be forced on you from outside. Not David nor I can can muzzle you and force you, compel you to confess. It must come from within. It must be an act of your own heart, through your own lips to God. No one can do it for you. God himself uses the conviction of sin the burden of conscience to draw out your confession. He uses the faithful wounds of a friend, that pain to remind us of this need. But only God can work on the heart, both to will and work for his good pleasure. David and I this morning can only hold out to you the blessing, the certainty, the forgiveness, and the joy that confession offers. You must open your heart and confess. Brothers and sisters, the carrot on the stick that God offers us this morning is joy. To be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Do you seek happiness? Then confess. And joy is what waits. Our brief final point this morning, therefore rejoice. Verses 10 and 11, therefore rejoice. 10 and 11, therefore rejoice. The last two verses present a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked, David says, only know many sorrows. Iniquity, hidden and ignored, multiplies sorrows. Clinging to sin does not bring happiness. But if you trust your evils to God in confession, He will surround you, it says, with steadfast love. This is the kind of love that that he gives in in covenant, that will never change. It's what designed your redemption in Jesus. It's what gives conviction of sin and and receives confession. God's love. And, And notice, brothers and sisters, the contrast in verse 10 is not between the wicked and the good. It's between the wicked and the one who trusts. And the one who trusts in verse 11 is therefore the righteous. You can be righteous by faith. Faith is counted to you as righteousness. Therefore, rejoice. Three times in verse 11, David calls on us to respond. Be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. When was the last time you literally shouted for joy? Maybe when your team won the big game. When, after a long time, you saw a loved one. Church, here is reason to be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Literally shout for joy. Your sins have been taken and laid on Jesus. Past, present, and future. All paid for by His blood and covered by His Perfect record. 
The favor and love of God for you is eternally secured. You are holy and blameless in his sight. You now have the comfort and power of God's spirit with you always. And he promises now to make you obedient from the heart. And that's not to mention the eternal weight of glory dwelling with the Lamb in perfect righteousness. There is greater joy set before us. And all this, friends, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride because God rejoices over you. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Shout for joy. Friends, whatever else your days hold, this joy is indestructible. God has prepared good works for you to walk in them, and in in them is to shout for joy, to bring God glory by rejoicing in your salvation. This kind of joy is not only incentive for our confession, but motivation for us to go and tell others about this source of joy. The only solution, just as David did. The truth is, the world around us is trying to conceal their sin. The message of the prince of this world, Satan, is the song of Elsa. Don't let them see Be the good boy or girl you always have to be. But all our hiding and good works will never bring us this joy. Everyone is seeking happiness. And if you've found it in Jesus, through the forgiveness of your sins, tell everyone He brings blessing and freedom. And it is for all. The best part of a happy life is God's forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we shout for joy in the forgiveness that we have received, not because of the covering of our own sins, not because we can lift it from ourselves, but because you have lifted it from us. Lord, we praise you and rejoice in this salvation that comes to us freely, available to all simply by confession and trusting in Christ. Father, we pray this morning that this joy would motivate our confession to you, that we would not hide our sins, but bring them into light for your forgiveness. And Lord, this same joy would motivate us to tell all of the forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in a moment, we will have opportunity to shout for joy because of the forgiveness. I would ask you, though, to spend a moment in silence preparing your heart to shout for joy, considering the forgiveness that you have received in Jesus Christ simply by confession. Please observe a moment of silence.